a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinker, and welcome to the show. All right, here we are two days past Election Day. And uh, as of the moment I crack this microphone open, still no clear answers as to uh, who has won the presidential race. It's looking a lot like it's going to be Joe Biden. And here's the funny thing. For all the people who spent the last four years raging and just, you know, so upset about Donald Trump. I, you know, Trump supporters and detractors alike, they all seem like they've taken a giant suck on a sour lemon. And I don't know what that is other than... Uh, this this election seems to have left a pretty bad taste in just about everybody's mouths. So, what do you call that? Is that a win-win when everybody's unhappy? I mean, you know, even the uh, the expected riots. I mean, Antifa. I love the uh, Babylon Bees uh, headline. Antifa patiently waiting as ballots are counted so they know whether or not they should riot. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think they're pretty much looking for an excuse no matter what. But even the wind was sucked out of their sails. So what do we make of it? Well, we're going to give it a whirl, and I have a couple of different things I'd like to share with you. I want to start with a commentary from Tom Cranawitter. Tom is a friend on Facebook. He is an unusually insightful commentator. And here are a few things he had to offer that I thought just gave a a very clear and fair perspective of, of the outcome. He says, for the record, Trump would be ahead in Nevada right now if he had the nearly 11,000 votes that have been cast for libertarian Joe Jorgensen. Now, he says, I'm not suggesting that those votes are rightfully Trump's or that uh, Jorgensen stole those votes. He says, I don't play those games. Each citizen is free to vote for whomever he wants. He says, I will suggest that the Republican Party fails to attract significant numbers of serious constitutionalists, freedom advocates, and patriots. Because too often Republicans behave like big spending, subsidizing, controlling, regulating, power-hungry progressives. He's got a point. He says disaffected Republicans devoted to the principles of liberty and disappointed by progressive Republican Richard Nixon, after all, were among those who founded the Libertarian Party back in 1971. And here we are. He says progressives who truly want to force others to pay for their own wasteful counterproductive programs those who want to control how others use their own property, run their own businesses, and live their own lives, know exactly for whom to vote, Democrats. For the more more gullible progressives, he says, they're easily fooled by marketing campaigns. Take a Democratic Party brimming with lifelong cronies devoted to tribal politics, a party that wastes enormous amounts of other people's money, a party that creates new problems to justify expanded government powers, a party that has never once defended the equal protection of equal individual rights, a party that thrives on war abroad and domestic terrorism at home, a party that operates by confiscation and control, call it love and peace and caring, and they swallow it hook, line, and sinker. 
Now, here's what's interesting. He says, but if you cherish the American ideal of individual liberty, if you prefer constitutional self-government over progressive central planning, if you think private property is good and should be protected by law, if you think the principles of the American founding are worth defending and teaching to others, you might not know where to go or with whom to ally. And he says, you might look to the Republican Party, and you might not. You might look to the Libertarian Party or somewhere else. He says, this is the central question of our age, self-government or central planning, the Constitution or bureaucratic regulation, productivity or subsidies, independence or dependence, equality under the laws or tribalism, freedom or control. Tom Cranowitter says, for those who want self-government, the Constitution, productivity, independence, equality under the laws, and freedom, where do they turn? The fact is that many have rejected the Republican Party, which is why Trump is losing in Nevada, which might end up costing him the election. Can the Republican Party once again become the party of freedom, of the founding, of Lincoln? He says there might be no question more important in our political future, near future, that is. Now, I'm not telling you you have to agree with what Tom Cranowood is saying, but I think he makes a whole lot of sense. And I count myself as one of those people who, yeah, you know, I may have voted with the Republicans this time around, but it was less because I willingly ran into their arms and more so because I found myself backed into the corner which their party was occupying by some of their opponents. Basically, I want to be left alone. I want to be able to enjoy the fruits of my labors. I want to be able to make my own decisions, utilize my own property, and I want to leave other people alone to pursue happiness as they wish to pursue it. Is that too much to ask? Yeah, don't answer that question. Republicans aren't necessarily content to leave me alone, but they're far less concerned with micromanaging my life and telling me everything to do, say, or think than their Democratic counterparts. And so I'll have nothing to do with their Democratic counterparts and only reluctantly throw in with the, with the Republicans as necessary. But it really goes beyond political parties, and that's the point Tom Cradwitter makes so beautifully. It's not just about uh, party A or party B. It really comes down to the collective versus the individual. And you will find that there are good people, and I mean really good people, on the progressive left who nonetheless understand that the rights of the individual matter. They may not be willing to embrace libertarianism full on or Republicans full on, but they understand that the rights of the individual count. I guess my hope is that we can find some kind of a common ground where those of us who want to uh, take over the world and leave everybody alone have some place where we can make that stand. Because I'm tired of being messed with, and I know that many of you are tired of it as well. It just doesn't do to have someone trying to centrally plan every aspect of your life. And more so than politics, I believe that the key to, uh, to remedying that, that uh, surge of collectivism starts with promoting the principles and practices of liberty at the individual level. I know a lot of people who do this, uh, you know, through how they raise their kids, 
how they talk to their neighbors, how they interact with their coworkers. Some take it to another level. They they write, or perhaps they host a podcast, or you know they they found a, a nonprofit. Every one of us has something that we can and should be doing, but I think it helps to remember that that's the real battle. It's not Dems versus Republicans. It's not left versus right. It's not red versus blue. It's the collective versus the individual. And if you will stand with the individual and stand for the rights of the individual, for equal protection under the law, I will stand with you all day and all night. That is my promise. All right, moving on. Well, it may just be like nostalgia, but uh, I don't know. I, I seem to remember a time when election night was actually fun. Now, part of that had to do with the fact that working in the media, I covered an awful lot of election night uh, returns for the various radio stations or media outlets for which I worked. And sometimes it got to be a little bit old. Sometimes it would carry on until the wee hours of the morning. But I don't think I've ever, <coughs> excuse me, had such a, a sense that uh, the, the, it stopped being fun and became more of this existential choice like I've seen this year. Jeffrey A. Tucker has a great column published yesterday about the fun night that wasn't fun. Listen to what he has to say. He says, in the old days which seemed behind us, people were invited to marvel at the workings of the American system. For all the powers, for all the problems, rather, with the vote in a constitutional republic, at least it assures the peaceful transition of power. That was the core argument that old liberals made for democracy. It kept violence at bay. Instead of killing each other for power and control, we went to the ballot box and acquiesced even when the vote didn't go the way we wanted. No more violent revolutions. Bring the peaceful cooperation of market action to politics itself. But he says the result somehow seems impossible this year. A year when the stakes are higher than ever because governments have never controlled so much of our lives. We found out some things we didn't know. We discovered that government can stop our travel plans. They can force us to stay home. They can shut down the stores and restaurants. They can ban us from recreation. They can shut down theaters and concert venues, not just piecemeal, but all at once. They can ban us from access to doctors and dentists, forbid weddings and funerals, abolish our traditions, Easter, July 4th, Thanksgiving, even Christmas, under the pretext of public health. And there's something more we discovered after election night. We'll come back to that in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Hey, just a reminder, if you haven't checked out the show notes, you can always find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. You're looking for the show notes for Thursday, November 5th. That's where you'll find this excellent article from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. The fun night that wasn't fun. He talks about something we all learned on election night. And that is, many governments have trouble counting ballots. He says, here it is, the day after the great election and conclusive results still elude us. It seems like this whole thing could go to the courts and stay there for weeks, if not months. It certainly doesn't feel very peaceful. It feels botched. 
not just the polls and media reporting, which has been 100% for a Biden sweep for many months, but even a basic function of democracy itself. It seems we've discovered yet another flaw in voting. It's managed by an institution that is really poor at managing things. Glenn Greenwald writes, The richest and most powerful country on earth, whether due to ineptitude, choice, or some combination of both, has no ability to perform the simple task of counting votes in a minimally efficient or confidence-inspiring manner. As a result, the credibility of the voting process is severely impaired, and any residual authority the U.S. claims to spread democracy to lucky recipients of its benevolence around the world is close to obliterated. Greenwald says no matter what the final result, there will be substantial doubts about its legitimacy by one side or the other, perhaps both. And no deranged conspiracy thinking is required for that. An electoral system suffused with this much chaos, error, protracted outcomes, and seemingly inexplicable reversals will sow doubt and distrust even among the most rational citizens. End quote. And Jeffrey Tucker points out that Glenn Greenwald is right that the damage to public trust is severe and probably lasting. For several decades now, each election winner has enjoyed less credibility than the last. And now we seem to have come to the point that half the country will not recognize, much less legitimize, the ostensible winner of the contest. But Jeff Tucker says, consider a larger lesson here. We do not want governments that cannot count ballots and competently manage elections to be in charge of mitigating a virus. What happened in 2020 is a scandal for the ages. Both parties are implicated. He says, recall that it was Donald Trump who on March 12th made the first major national move in the direction of lockdown. By executive fiat, he closed flights from Europe, then the UK, then Australia, actions so draconian and extreme that such was never imagined even by the most nativist nationalist. This action set the tone for government control. Once the other party got involved at the state level, we found ourselves, and still find ourselves, subjected to a level of control that would be considered unconscionable at any time in our history. By the time Trump figured out he was being trolled and gathered into his inner circle some actual rational scientists who could explain the basics of immunology to him, the lockdowns had smashed everything we had previously taken for granted. Then he also found himself powerless to control governments at the state level, while still not dealing with his initial mistake of thinking he could use his power and authority to fight and destroy the invisible enemy. Jeffrey A. Tucker says at some indiscernible point, and perhaps this was the point from the beginnings of this insanity in late February, the virus was no longer a bug to be managed but a political issue to ride all the way to the November elections. A virus became political. Now, to be sure, there was and is a tremendous intellectual error associated with the belief that mandatory human separation and the smashing of the social order is the way to control a textbook virus. But how and why this error came to dominate the national narrative for fully eight months cries out for explanation. Surely politics has something to do with it, if not everything to do with it. Tucker says to some degree the election became a referendum on lockdowns. Trump found that his anti-lockdown rhetoric gained the most applause lines at his rallies, so in the last weeks before the vote, 
he started emphasizing this more, and his poll numbers began to shift. Also, his message started informing races for the House and Senate. And sure enough, though the Democrats will likely gain the presidency just barely, the composition of Congress will not change. Tucker says it'll be months before we can tell to what extent the lockdowns had an influence on the outcomes. One merciful result for which we can hope is that the virus will no longer be deployed for political purposes, and perhaps some modicum of good sense will return. Disease is something to be dealt with by medical professionals, not politicians and their advisors using executive degrees. Decrees, rather. He says, may this wonderful country be forever spared another nightmare such as 2020 has brought. The way to make sure that happens is to finally recognize and embrace the limits of state power. Let them figure out how to count ballots before they ever again take away our freedoms in the name of virus management. Love it. (laughs) I think that's actually right on the money. Yeah, if you wouldn't count them to give you a good, solid election result. Why would you trust them to tell you whether you can or can't work or what to do and and how to handle, you know, um, the, the COVID problem? Those are decisions you and I need to be making. Now, interestingly enough, Freedom made some fairly strong advances in Tuesday's election. And this is going to be counterintuitive for some folks. It's, uh, it's going to make some people maybe a little bit uncomfortable. But did you see how many states stepped up and legalized marijuana or at least made made significant steps towards ending cannabis prohibition? Oregon took it a a step further as they, you know, maybe not surprisingly were, were want to do. And they have decriminalized possession of just about all drugs, including heroin, including um, cocaine. I mean, they, they have basically taken it out of the realm of criminality and more into the public health realm. And again, I know for, for many of my conservative friends, oh, that means everything's out of control. It really doesn't. And you can look to Portugal for an example of how this works, taking it out of the realm of we punish this with criminal justice and into the realm of health where people who are either addicted to these substances or dependent on these substances can get the help that they need rather than having to, to skirt the edges of society, you know, by hiding in the shadows because they're afraid of legal consequences. John Miltmore actually has a terrific article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Tuesday was a green wave for marijuana legalization. He says, for months we've heard about blue waves and red waves, but Americans saw neither on Tuesday. Democrats, Democrats rather, retained their House majority but bled several congressional seats, while Republicans appear poised to keep the Senate. And nobody knows who the president will be. But that doesn't mean there was no wave, however. America's march toward ending cannabis prohibition continued on Tuesday as voters in several states embraced legislation by overwhelming margins. Five states. Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota had ballot initiatives seeking to legalize use of the recreational drug. Each state voted in favor of legalization. As of early November 4th, the results were the following. It passed in Arizona 62 to 40, Mississippi 62 to 38, Montana 57.5 to 42.5, New Jersey 66 to 34 percent, 
South Dakota, 535 to 46.6%. Hard to say, well, that was just, you know, some fringe issue that just was, you know, supported by a tiny minority. We're going to come back to the article here in a few moments. We'll, we'll explore some of the reasons why the unstoppable green wave appears to be sweeping across the country. And even if you are a person who would never, you know, pick up a joint or otherwise use any cannabis product, I'm going to do my best to explain why this is actually a good thing. And it benefits you and even people who would never use cannabis at all. We'll have that just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining me in this exercise in wrong think. And, and I really feel like, man, I'm, I'm skirting the edges of wrong think today, venturing out on the thin ice. As I share with you this article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education, Tuesday was a green wave for marijuana legalization. Now, I understand for some people that is, uh, that's a scary thing, especially if you're a person who would never consider using recreational marijuana. That may seem like, oh, that's the last thing we need. But I'd like to explain, or actually I'm going to let John Miltimore explain why this is actually good for the overall cause of freedom. He says, though, uh, though marijuana remains a controlled substance under federal law, U.S. Attorney General William Barr has signaled support for a Tenth Amendment-style approach that would allow states to determine the legality of marijuana use. And while states saw some questionable policies pass, on marijuana use, Americans spoke loud and clear. The message was, end prohibition. Following Tuesday's vote, some 16 million more Americans will soon be able to marijuana smoke freely. Politico points out one in three Americans now live in a state where recreational marijuana is legal. Now, the reasons America has headed this direction are manifold. According to John Miltimore, studies show marijuana legalization is creating tens of thousands of jobs projected to generate more than a quarter billion dollars of labor income annually by 2024. And those projections will only grow as more states adopt legalization policies. Marijuana prohibition, on the other hand, has resulted in mass prosecution and imprisonment of nonviolent Americans. According to the ACLU, arrests for pot account for more than half of all drug busts in the U.S. These arrests disproportionately impact African Americans who are 3.73 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana than whites, despite similar usage rates. Like alcohol prohibition in the U.S. 1920 to 1933, marijuana prohibition is a well-intentioned policy designed to keep people from using a potentially harmful product. And like alcohol prohibition, it soon became apparent the prescription was worse than the disease itself. Studies show that marijuana legalization lowers violent crime with fewer homicides, aggravated assaults, and robberies. John Miltimore says the war on drugs was always a bad idea, and Tuesday's vote shows that Americans of all political persuasions increasingly recognize it. That's a win for freedom, for cannabis users, and the whole economy. 
There's another article. I don't know if I'll, I, I, I'm probably not going to include this one in the show notes, but uh, this is from Reason Magazine. And uh, they, they took a pretty straight-on approach to this. The article is written by Elizabeth Nolan, and it says, On election night, drugs. The real winner was drugs. Drugs are still winning the war on drugs. It's the morning after the 2020 election, she says, and the result everyone is waiting for. Will Donald Trump best Joe Biden or vice versa? That's still a mystery wrapped in a uh, cluster something. But she says there was absolutely one certain loser last night, and that was the war on drugs. Of nine drug decriminalization or legalization measures on state ballots last night, including two addressing hallucinogens and one covering all illegal drugs, not a single one failed. And these were decisive victories, too, not close calls. Unlike some previous waves of pro-marijuana votes concentrated in predictable areas, successful anti-drug war measures in 2020 spanned a diverse array of states. Crazy stuff. Now, you may look at this and you may think, well, this just indicates that people are losing their minds. They're all hopped up on goofballs. And I really don't think that's the case. I think people are just finally starting to recognize that despite the good intentions, it's a bad idea to punish what someone ingests with criminal penalties. If someone does something that that constitutes a crime, meaning they harm another person, absolutely they should be held accountable for their behavior, just as we do with alcohol. If you provide it to a minor, that's a no-no. Go out and drive while you're under the influence of a particular substance? Yeah, that's a no-no as well. But we should have learned something from the experience with prohibition. Back in the 1920s, it should have taught us a little something about what works and and how the wrong people are empowered when government creates a black market and artificially raises the profit margins to such obscene heights that people are literally willing to kill each other over who gets to distribute a particular product. There's a reason you don't see beer truck drivers shooting it out in the convenience store parking lots these days over who gets to sell their product. Now, none of that should be construed as, uh, therefore, alcohol is a good thing, and the more you drink of it, the better. I wouldn't try to make that case. It can be a huge problem for people. But the problem with the war on drugs, the way that it has been approached, is that it takes an amount of freedom from every single person, including those who don't even use drugs in the misguided attempt to prevent people from making choices that, uh, that the prohibitors or the uh, prohibitionists you know, would like them to not take. So I'm happy to see this, see the uh, rolling back of the criminal penalties. I think of the picture I saw, oh, when was it? It was a few years ago. It was when uh, Colorado finally uh, legalized marijuana and, and made it uh, recreational as well as medicinal. And there was a picture of a person standing there next to a cop. They're both smiling. They're both giving a thumbs up. The person is holding a potted plant. In fact, it was a pot plant in a planter. And I thought, well, there you go. Because, you know, just a few months earlier, prior to that picture, you know, being taken, that would have been an arrestable offense. That would have been bringing the force of the state to bear. And, and again, who would it have helped 
Well, it would have sent a message that drugs are bad, okay? Believe it or not, you can get the message across that uh, that abuse of substances, be it drugs, be it alcohol, be it eating too much, is a bad thing. Putting it into the realm of criminal justice, though, invites abuse on the part of the state. Let's let the state deal with actual crimes where there's an actual victim and leave peaceful people alone to pursue happiness as best they can. Yeah, some people are going to make mistakes. And those mistakes that they make in pursuit of their own happiness, that's what Lysander Spooner explained, are vices. They're mistakes that people make while pursuing their own happiness. But he said vices are not crimes, and they should not be treated as crimes. I want to live in a society that... uh, that chooses not to alter its reality or to try to escape from reality simply because it's a voluntary choice and people understand there's a better, healthier, more productive way to live life than under the influence of whatever drug, be it a prescription drug, be it alcohol, or some other currently illicit substance. But if you want to live in a virtuous society where that kind of choice is the norm, where that's one of the social mores, and, and it's considered, no, that's a good. That's, that's, that's a responsible attitude to take. It has to be a choice that people make on their own. In other words, it can't be coerced. Someone who does the right thing when they're acting under coercion is not behaving in a virtuous fashion. They're doing whatever it takes to avoid punishment, and there's a world of difference in how that choice plays out. If you want a virtuous society, people have got to be free to choose. And that means some people will choose to ingest substances or to do things that you would not. The test of your commitment to freedom is if they are making peaceful choices that primarily affect themselves, let them. And expect the same in return from them. There may be things that you do, peaceful choices you do, that have nothing to do with smoking something or sniffing something up your nose or drinking something. That nonetheless, people say, well, I don't really agree with that. I don't like the fact that, uh, you know, you're having friends over for Bible study. Live and let live. It's something that works every time it's tried, but somehow we've lost sight of it. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a few moments. When we come back, here is the question that's on a lot of people's minds right now. Can a disintegrating America come together? Pat Buchanan always does a great job of zooming out to 30,000 feet and giving a, a good recounting of what the lay of the land looks like from, uh, from a good distance, a, a real big picture of, of what's going on. And he takes a pretty strong assessment of what America looks like now that the election has come and gone, now that we're winding our way through the aftermath of the election and, of course, waiting to see how it all shakes out. Things are pretty calm for the moment, but he points out that uh, we probably are about as perfectly divided as a nation as we've been at any point in our history. The big question is, can we come together? I'll tell you what Pat Buchanan has to say about it, just the other side of these messages. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, could I encourage you, please, go by my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look up the show notes for Thursday, November 5th. And right at the bottom of the show notes, you'll find a nice little link where you can go and subscribe if you would like to become a patron of the show. Well, I'll tell you what, it would be greatly appreciated. Every every dollar that uh, you donate is used for the sacred duty of proclaiming the message of liberty. And I take this very seriously. And this is this is what I do, and it's a privilege and an honor to do it. I feel a stewardship here, and I thank those who have uh, stepped up and become regular monthly supporters of the show. If that's something you'd like to consider, I would welcome it and promise to use those funds wisely and, and for the purposes outlined here of speaking truth and light at a time when it's sorely needed. Got a great article here from Pat Buchanan. Can a disintegrating America come together? And this is kind of the big picture of what we're looking at right now in America. He says, on the last days of the 2020 campaign, President Donald Trump was holding four and five rallies a day in battleground states, drawing thousands upon thousands of loyalists to every one. Waiting for hours, sometimes in the cold, to cheer their champion on, these rally-goers love Trump as few presidents have been loved. He says this writer cannot recall a president and campaign that brought out so many and such massive crowds of admirers in its closing days. And who are these cheering, chanting loyalists who have brought their children out with them to see and remember the great Trump in the eyes of our dispossessed elites? These are the people who belong in a basket of deplorables, sneered Hillary Clinton. Racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic bigots, and a subspecies of humanity that is irredeemable. He says this election is an us-versus-them choice unlike any other, for the issues in dispute are broader and deeper than ever before. And he says those issues raise questions. No matter who wins, can this nation come together again? And if it cannot, a real possibility, what form will America take as it disintegrates? Even as voters were mailing in ballots in the millions, stores in our great cities were being boarded up against rioters, looters, and arsonists. Suburban residents, fearful that urban mobs may one day be coming for them, were stockpiling guns and ammunition. And so Pat Buchanan asks, how divided are we? The Sunday New York Times, or I'm sorry, the New York Times Sunday Review, rather, donated its entire section to Donald Trump, as seen from the eyes of its columnists. On the cover page of the review ran the headline, All 15 of our columnists explain what the past four years have cost America and what's at stake in this election. And then each of the 15 trashed Trump from his or her perspective. Since World War II, America has held elections where the country seemed at sword's point. Not all were like 1960, where scholar Arthur Schlesinger Jr. felt compelled to write the book, Kennedy or Nixon, Does It Make Any Difference? Schlesinger felt he had to explain that despite the similarity of the candidates, both in their 40s, it made a difference who was elected. Yet even after the most divisive elections of the post-war era, 1952 and 1968, the country pulled back together. President Dwight Eisenhower from 1952 to 1958 and Richard Nixon from 1968 to 
1952 and 1968, rather. Hang on, 1952 and 1956, and then Richard Nixon from seventy from 68 to 72, restored unity to the nation during their first terms by ending the Asian wars into which their predecessors had taken the nation. New leadership ended the wars and brought the United States together. So the difference today, well, Pat Buchanan points out Americans are not divided over war. One of Trump's successes has been to keep us out of new wars, even if he has not yet extracted us from the wars he inherited. Today, we are divided over ideology, morality, culture, race, and history. We're divided over whether America is the great nation we were raised to revere and love, or a nation born in great sins and crimes, such as the near annihilation of indigenous peoples and their cultures, and the enslavement of hundreds of thousands of black peoples from Africa. Are we the nation of 1776 and 1789 or the nation of 1619 whose institutions are still infected with the so-called systemic racism of our birth? In this divided country at times, Buchanan says Americans seem to detest each other. Indeed, if the United States did not exist as one nation, would this diverse people ever agree to form a compact to come together or would we seek to retain our own separate identities? In tearing down the statues of explorers such as Christopher Columbus or the Founding Fathers and their successor presidents, from Andrew Jackson to Abraham Lincoln to Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, the contempt for the country these men helped to bring into being and for what this country stands for today is manifest. He says a significant slice of America's young believes that the nation to which they belong was detestable from its birth and that the Western civilization from which it sprang is not worth saving. In his farewell address, President Ronald Reagan spoke of the America where he was raised and which he cherished, saying, quote, The hope of human freedom, the quest for it, the achievement of it, is the American saga. And I've often recalled one group of early settlers making a treacherous crossing of the Atlantic on a small ship when their leader, a minister, noted that perhaps their venture would fail and they would become a byword, a footnote to history, but perhaps too with God's help. They might also found a new world, a city upon a hill, a light unto the nations, end quote. Pat Buchanan concludes by saying, how many Americans still believe what Reagan believed? How many yet see America as a city upon a hill, a light unto the nations? You know, you don't have to be, you know, engaging in weepy-eyed, you know, patriotism and salute the flag when it comes by to understand that there is something unique about this nation amidst all the other nations of the earth. And, and I have to be careful how I say this because some people will misconstrue this as, oh, so you believe in American exceptionalism, as in we're all that and a bag of chips, and if anybody messes with us, it is our prerogative to kick their teeth in and put them in their place. Furthermore, we can just go do that to pretty much anybody around the world. Why? Because might makes right. That's a definition of American exceptionalism I don't subscribe to. But I will say that I believe there is something unique. There is a promised land quality to this nation. And I think if you were to look at the the writings that reflect the attitudes and the understanding of the founding generation, you would find that uh, there was a great reverence for what they called divine providence, meaning they believed that there was a divine plan 
and that uh, this nation's future was a part of it. Now, look, they weren't perfect, and so I'm not trying to deify them or say, you know, by gosh, you know, everything they did was beyond reproach. But again, you can't read their writings without coming away with the understanding that there was an incredible humility and appreciation and love, not just of liberty, but of God, whom they saw as the source of liberty. And maybe I'm just reading into it what I, what I want to read into it, but I believe that those things are, are connected. I don't think that freedom could have been possible on the scale that we have seen and enjoyed throughout most of our nation's history, if not for the hand of divine providence. And when you read the different proclamations made by presidents and made you know, before Congress, days of fasting, days of prayer, days of thanksgiving, in which they encourage the nation to appeal to God, not as a theocracy, but simply as a God-fearing people, for the sake of their liberty, and to help them preserve their freedoms. You can't help but notice that they believed there was, there was more to it than simply, you know, a political outcome. This is what's going to work. They weren't, they weren't as Machiavellian in their approach as many of our politicians appear to be today. As a bonus, I'm going to include a, a link to an essay from the Tenth Amendment Center. This is from Sam Jacobs. I believe this was originally published on Ammo.com. Freedom versus Liberty. How subtle differences between these two big ideas changed our world. I know we have a tendency to kind of use these words interchangeably, but they are actually quite different. Liberty and freedom are not precisely the same thing. And this article by Sam Jacobs does a brilliant job of explaining it and and doing so in a way that uh, it it makes sense and it also makes it clear that uh, we should be careful how we use these words because they're really not interchangeable. The more we use them interchangeably, the more cliché they become. So check it out. It's in the show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, that's the article, Freedom versus Liberty, How Subtle Differences Between These Two Big Ideas Changed Our World. Thanks again for joining us today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.